0: You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. ...that John is right. Jesus is the Son of God who came to take away the sin of the world and to give eternal life to whoever believes. Then it's actually you that will change. It's actually your situation that will change. So in that sense, this whole trial that's being set up is kind of upside down in the sense that the, the claims being made against Jesus um, aren't going to... Uh, Jesus isn't going to change at all. But we deciding whether or not John is true about Jesus will radically change us. It'll convert us from death to life, from darkness to light, from alienation to adoption, from futility to glory, and from condemnation to grace. So everything rides on the testimony of these three witnesses. Let's look at the first witness, the voice in the wilderness and this is the testimony verse 19 this is the testimony of john john the baptist this is where it gets confusing because the apostle's name is john who's writing the book this is a different john john the baptist okay so he's talking about john the baptist here this is the testimony of john when the jews sent priests and levites from jerusalem to ask him who are you he confessed and he did not deny he confessed i am not the christ And they asked him, what then are you, Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So a little background on John the Baptist. John the Baptist's father was Zechariah, who was a priest in the temple. And he and his wife were unable to have children. They were barren. And they were getting up in age, and an angel appeared to Zechariah and said, you're going to have a son, and I have a special assignment for your son. You're going to name him John. And Zechariah did not believe him, and God just kind of cut him off for a bit in terms of like he couldn't speak for quite some time. He had to write things down and stuff. And lo and behold, this elderly couple conceived, and Elizabeth was pregnant with a son. Uh, This... John the Baptist is actually a relative of Jesus Christ in fact Mary uh, Goes and meets with Elizabeth when, and they're both pregnant at the same time So John is just a few months older than Jesus and is actually a relative of Jesus And here's what the the book of Matthew says what's interesting is John the Baptist is mentioned at the beginning of all four Gospels So that means we ought to pay attention. John the Baptist is a significant Um, a a significant individual. He plays a very short part in the overall life of the the scriptures, but Jesus himself says that there is no one greater than John. John is the greatest prophet who ever lived because he got to be the one that pointed out the Christ. And here's what Matthew says. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So this is a man who lives kind of out in the sticks, out in the middle of nowhere. And here is his message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John wore garments of camel hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So he was weird. All right, Anybody know anybody weird? Anybody sitting by anybody weird? All right, I don't see anybody in camel hair munching on locusts, but maybe now that you're introduced to it, you want to uh, think about that. All Jerusalem and all Judea, this is what Matthew says, and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. So everybody was kind of drawn to this message and he was telling them to turn from their sins because God's Messiah is coming soon. The kingdom of God is about to come. So you need to get your house in order. You need to get yourself ready. You need to get your heart and mind ready to receive and follow and believe in the kingdom of God that is about to come. And all the region of the Jordan came out to see him and they were They were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John's baptism represented a a repentance, a cleansing of sin, a purification, to go, we are ready for the presence of God to come among us. Um, John actually introduced uh, John the Baptist. John the Apostle introduced John the Baptist back in verse 6. So if you have your Bible open, you can look earlier in chapter 1. And he actually introduced John earlier in his prologue. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness... Three powerful witnesses. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that, he, that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. So that's John, John the Baptist, preaching a message of repentance in the desert, and he's getting a pretty remarkable following, and he's baptizing as people are preparing themselves for the king to come, the kingdom of God to come. So now here's what happens is that there's a delegation of the temple leadership because there is someone doing purification rituals, and preaching a message, and he's not endorsed by the temple authority. So he's out here; he's gaining quite a following. He's claiming to to proclaim um, the message of the kingdom. And the temple leadership, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Levites, the priests, are like, "Wait a minute, is this guy one of us or not?" And so they send out a delegation. They send out a delegation of people. Jerusalem sent priests. Because it was the priests who did the ceremonial washings and baptisms and they are as you can imagine a little concerned about John the Baptist Hey, that's our job. Do you have the credentials to do what you're doing? Uh, He's not a priest. He's doing this out in the wilderness. So they're concerned and they're going to check him out They sent Levites who are in a sense the temple theological police (laughs) They're going out to kind of make sure. Hey, is this legit? What he is doing out here and they come to scrutinize the message of John the Baptist John is preaching a message that the last days are dawning and the temple delegation wants to go make sure that this is a legitimate message or if they need to squash this if this is some sort of rebellion they ask two questions first is who are you and why do you baptize that's the second question who are you and why do you baptize and so here's how John answers they first ask him are you Elijah are you Elijah because there's a prophecy at the end of Malachi that says that Elijah will come before the last days he will come and he will bring a message. And so they're like, are you Elijah? Do you, do you believe yourself to be Elijah? And he says, no. I am not Elijah, risen from the dead. I'm not Elijah. And so they, at the end of Deuteronomy, there's a prophecy about a prophet like Moses coming before the last days. So they say, are you the prophet? He says, no. And I'm not the Christ either. So then they're like, well, what, what gives you the right to do what you're doing? And he says, you need to know your Bibles, Isaiah 40, verse 3 says that there will be a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Which is what you would do in Old Testament times when a king is about to come in. If you knew that a king was about to come, then there would be a, someone, a herald that would go ahead and say, the king is coming, get your stuff together. Right? You want your house to look nice, you want to be dressed in your best stuff, you want to make sure the road is straight and clear, you want to make sure that people are lining because a dignitary, a king is coming. And in a sense, he, he is telling them that you need to get your heart, your life. You need to repent of sin. You have not been living as you ought, and God is about to come. Prepare the way of the Lord. John says, I'm that guy. I'm that guy. And so that is who John says. He says, I am the guy who is going to point out, um, point out the coming of the Lord. So the second question they ask is, why do you baptize? Look at verse 24. Now, when they had been sent from the Pharisees, uh, they asked him, why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? So what authorization do you do to, to, to perform this religious rite? You can't just do this on your own. You can't just baptize on your own. You must have some sort of authority. John said, I baptize with water, but among, among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So in a sense, he is saying, why are you baptizing? Two reasons, to prepare for someone greater and to reveal who that greater someone is. I'm baptizing because I'm about to show you who I'm preparing for someone greater through the repentance of people and to reveal who that someone greater is, which we'll see in verse 31. The purpose of John's baptizing and ministry is being bound up in revealing the true identity of Jesus and preparing people to receive him. So John is the first powerful witness. In verse 29, we see him introduce an unusual but second powerful witness. So as he fulfills his duty of declaring who the Christ is and identifying him for all people, he also in that same moment introduces us to a second witness. Now this is interesting. Witness number two is the Lamb of God. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he came before me, meaning that Jesus existed before John did. John's like, I'm older than him, but actually he's older than me because he's eternal God. He is the one man who has existed before his conception and birth. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing in water. With water that he might be revealed to Israel. So I'm fulfilling my mission by declaring to you that he is the Lamb of God. Now, Lamb of God, that's a weird phrase if you don't know your Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there is all kinds of symbolism and history that makes this Lamb of God statement incredibly powerful, a a tremendously significant statement here. For Jesus to say, This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This echoes back to several Old Testament passages. I think I have a bunch of them up on the screen. And thankfully, we have a giant screen, so I can put tons of stuff up up there in front of you. But here's what's happening, is your whole Old Testament, all of those 39 books before your New Testament, they actually preach Christ. It's just preaching Christ kind of in the shadows and in symbols and in prophecies, getting your heart and your mind and the world ready for when Jesus himself will come into the world. And so... Here is one of those places where this symbol of the Lamb of God is preparing us and picturing us so that when Jesus comes, we'll go, this is what he came to do. And here's what we have. Look at Genesis 3.21. You can see it up on the screen. This echoes back to the fact that when Adam and Eve were sinned in the garden and were kicked out of the garden and they were under the curse and everything fell apart and all the problems that are in our lives found their source right there, that God actually killed an animal and covered them in skins because sin has to be covered and it can only be covered by the death of an innocent. So when John is saying that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is echoing back to Genesis 3 when sin requires a covering of the death of someone innocent. It goes back to Genesis chapter 22 where Abraham says, take your son up on the mountain your beloved son, the promised son, go and sacrifice him on the mountain um, to show your allegiance to me. And Isaac asks his father, God, where's not God, father, <laughs> father, where's the lamb? And Abraham says to his son, God Himself will supply the lamb. And just as he is about to sacrifice his son, God says, Stop! And there's a there's a there's a lamb, there's a ram actually caught in the bushes. And so what you have is you have not just a covering from for sin needed in Genesis 3 but you have someone dying in the place of another you have a lamb dying in the place of a son and you have this picture being built out Exodus chapter 12 which we read um, earlier Christine read for us is the Passover as God is delivering his people out of the land of, of, of Egypt and the angel of death is about to come and kill all the firstborn sons unless you take an innocent pure lamb and you And you kill it, and you spread its blood on the door of the post, and you stay inside the blood, stay inside the doorway. Inside that blood, it is safe from judgment. And so you have this picture of a lamb dying in the place so that judgment will pass over. So covering for sin, a lamb in the place of a son, safety from judgment within the blood. And then in Leviticus 16, we see that the Day of Atonement, every year, lambs by the thousands are killed to help cover the sins of the people. And they keep having to do it every year because the blood of lambs and goats doesn't actually cover sins. It was just delaying the payment plan. It was just kind of shoving things under the rug until the permanent lamb would come. And so the, the Day of Atonement, these lambs that are dying are pointing and witnessing too that there is a greater lamb who's coming. And Isaiah 53, 7 promises that there will be one who comes like a lamb led to slaughter for our sin. He will bear our iniquities. He will heal all our diseases. And then John will actually write, after he writes this gospel, he'll write another testimony about Revelation 5, 6. How in heaven, there's a slaughtered lamb worthy to open the scroll and bring the plan of God to its final conclusion. And in Revelation 21, 9, we see the wedding supper of the lamb. So all of these murdered lambs down through history proclaim to us as witnesses that there is one coming who will be like this will be innocent and pure and who will die on behalf of another whose blood will be the remission of sins. And so the second powerful witness is that Jesus is that lamb. Your entire Old Testament, all of the bloody sacrifices, all of the rituals, all of the history, is bringing into a culmination that there is one who is coming who is going to be perfect Israel, the perfect lamb. He is going to be the new Adam, and he is going to be the one who takes away the sin of the world. Notice there that the word sin is in the singular. Because our problem is not ultimately individual sins. Our problem is sin. Sin itself. A disposition where we think we know better than God. Where we want to rule our lives and not God. Sins, the individual sins we commit, are just symptoms. The disease is sin in our hearts. A sinful nature. A rebellious attitude towards God. It is sin. He didn't just come to take away the sins of the world. He came away to take the sin of the world to take the sin of us. And this is shocking because John is saying he's not coming to take away the sin of Israel. Who is he coming to take away the sin for? The world. This would be shocking to a Jewish people who sees the Gentiles as dogs. He's not coming just for, he's not just coming for Israel as Israel's Messiah. He is a Messiah for all people. And that's good news for us. I don't know how many of you in here are Jewish, but it's good news that the Lamb came to die to take away the sin Of the world. Of the world. He came to take away the sin of the world. Which is a prediction then that Jesus is going to die like a lamb. And that death is going to be for sin. And we realize that this is permanent and definitive. You see that? He comes to take away the sin of the world. Unlike those other lambs that died and you had to do it again year after year. And you're so sick of being drenched in blood all the time. He's going to take away the sin. He's going to take it away once and for all definitively. John doesn't present Jesus as a great moral example or a great teacher of holiness and love. He proclaimed Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. It wasn't behold the great example or behold the great teacher. He said behold what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who covers our sin. The one who dies in our place. The one who we can hide from judgment the one who um, dies once and for all, the one who's like the lamb led to slaughter, the one who is worthy to open the scroll and the one that we will be gathered one day around the wedding supper. That lamb. So that's witness number two. Witness number three then we see at the end in verse 32 through 34. John bore witness. I saw the spirit. So the third witness is the spirit like a dove. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the son of God. So we have this third witness, this third witness of the spirit coming like a dove and landing on the one. And it is as if God himself is saying, this is it. This is the one. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, we actually hear the voice of of God. We don't have it recorded here in John. But here's what Matthew 3 says. says, Jesus answered him, Let it now be so, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness, meaning that Jesus came to John to be baptized, not because Jesus had anything to repent of, but he is so identifying with repenting sinners that he says, To fulfill all righteousness, I need to fully identify with mankind, even in baptism. So if anyone didn't need to be baptized, it was Jesus. And he says, I need to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness because I am coming fully in your place. So this is why baptism, after you believe, is is really critical. Not because it's part of our justification or saving us, but in a sense we're meeting Jesus in the water. He came and identified with us even though he didn't have to. And now we, even though we don't have to, are happy To join him in the water in order to fulfill all righteousness. So that's part of why we baptize people as believers. Because Jesus commands it. And what a kind invitation that he gives to us. That he came and was baptized to identify with us. What a glorious thing to be identified with him. And then here's what happens. I got distracted. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he came out of the water. And behold, the heavens were opened up. Can you imagine what it would be like to be at that moment? The heavens opened up over Jesus and John in the water. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So the Spirit of God and actually the voice of the Father, you have the whole Trinity going, This is it. This is the King. This is the King. This is the Messiah. This is the Lamb of God. This is the perfect Israel. This is everything you've been waiting for. This is everything that human human beings need is this And the Spirit comes and lands on him like a dove. And we have this witness from God himself that this is who John the Apostle is saying he is. John has called this witness, the Spirit, like a dove. And we think back to, in the Old Testament, in Genesis 1, the Spirit hovering over the waters at creation. God's good creation at the beginning, you see the Spirit hovering over water. In John 8, Noah sends a dove out to see if God's judgment has passed. And a dove is flying over the waters and eventually gives indication that God's judgment has passed. Do you see now the Spirit is hovering over the waters saying that a new creation has come and God's judgment is about to pass over you because of this one. Do you see the picture from the Old Testament Of, of the Spirit hovering like a dove in these key moments in redemptive history and now it's all coming together and it's going, oh, that was all about Jesus all along. He's the new creation. He is the ark that we're safe in. He is the proof that God's judgment has passed. He is the one who baptizes with the Spirit. So here is what you have. These three witnesses are saying this. Here is what the three witnesses are saying. So we're now at the point here where we have to decide, based on John's opening statement about Jesus being the creator God who came in human flesh, who came to bear sin, And bring life to all who believe. Let me call these three witnesses to you. The voice crying in the desert. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Spirit like a dove. These witnesses are telling us. That Jesus is the Lord. That Jesus is the sin bearer. That Jesus is the timeless one who came before. That Jesus is the anointed one who has the Spirit upon him. And can give the Spirit to whomever he wishes. That Jesus is the true baptizer. And that Jesus is the son of God. That's what these witnesses are telling you. And so now it's time for you to come to a verdict. What do you say? Who do you say Jesus is? What is your verdict? Are these witnesses credible? Is Jesus your lamb who takes away your sin? And here's the amazing thing. The whole Old Testament, like I said before, is about Jesus. The prophets, one who will come. One who will come like a prophet in the wilderness. The ceremonies, the deliverance, the dead lambs, all of that pointing to Jesus. And God himself, hovering like a dove, coming on Jesus and actually declaring at his baptism, baptism, this is my son. God has laid out these witnesses before us so that we would repent and believe. Just like John says, we need to prepare the way for the Lord, right? So let's repent of our sins. Let's believe these witnesses and let's embrace the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us that we might have our sin taken away permanently, forever. And if you are a Christian here today, rejoice in those things. Feel the joy of the fact that God arranged all of this. God has been rigging human history in order to bring himself glory and bring you to him. What an awesome thing to just think about. And pray that God would make you a powerful witness of Jesus. Here's the good news is God hasn't stopped with just three witnesses. Acts 1.8 tells us you will be my witnesses. So let's pray that just like these three powerful witnesses, we might be powerful witnesses. That show and display and tell the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done, that he's the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of any and all who would believe in him. It's the most glorious truth in the whole world. What an honor it would be to be his witnesses. So let's open our mouths with grace and kindness, telling people out loud with words what the gospel is and what it does for those who believe in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these words of the Apostle John. John puts us in a a crossroads where Jesus either is who the scriptures say he is or he's not. And so Lord, now we sit here and in a sense we've heard the evidence, we've heard the witnesses and now we have to make a determination. Not that it changes who Jesus is at all. Jesus is fine. But this decision changes everything for us. If he is the kingdom of God come, as John testified, if he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, if he is the one who comes and baptizes in the Spirit, is the Son of God, then, Lord, we must bow and kneel and submit ourselves wholly to him. And I pray that your people here today would do that in their hearts, would come to grips with their sin before a holy God, would turn from that sin and want you more, love you more, want to follow you more and be part of being one of your powerful witnesses in the world. God, use us. Help us to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.